Section 6 of The Desirable Alien at Home in Germany by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6a Beer Gardens versus Bear Gardens. The German social institution called Wirtschaftsgarten is usually roughly translated in England by the words beer garden. And these two words are always pronounced in England with a certain degree of tolerant moral deprecation. And did you really go to one, my dear? The Wirtschaftsgarten is, to my mind, one of the most reasonable, utilitarian, and at the same time poetical, arrangements of a reasonable, utilitarian and poetical people. In England, where some emancipated souls read Faust, in translations, the scene in Auerbach's cellar is always taken to represent this, the German people's staple form of amusement. Hence the shocked question I have quoted which greets travellers on their return from Cologne or Bremen. I should say that the parallel scene of the cellar might perhaps have been found in the sixties, in London night cellars, so painedly described by Thackeray in the Newcombs. Colonel Newcomb, who had attended the same form of entertainment in the thirties, before he went to India, is said to be indescribably shocked, and takes his young son away with fracas. But the open-air decent entertainment which the modern Gartenwirtschaften represent also obtained in England in his day, I have faint recollections of the last flickering symptoms of it in my own youth. I remember in those summer days of childhood, which seemed so long and so much more summery than any summer afternoons that can occur to me now, I remember walking forth with my parents and perhaps some other parents and children in very hot weather about a mile out of Durham along the banks of the Ware thinly flowing on its parched bed under Pelor Wood. And we went to a place called the Strawberry Gardens near Maiden Castle. The children were buoyed up on their long walk by talk of strawberries to be gathered off the bushes. And when we got there, we all had to sit down on rustic benches made in one with tables that you had to fit your legs into and not kick. These seats were placed in the narrow alleys of the wide, dullish, not very gay garden. We consumed, well, it is so long ago, I only remember what I consumed, and that was, I think, strawberries. And these strawberries were gathered, all of them, from the beds at our feet, and they were grown in what is now as black as the black country, black but still comely, and not so black as it is today under the drifting pall of smoke that sways hither and thither as the wind lists and cloud wreaths that incalculably pass low overhead and stoop and deposit the smutty death over the land that lies prone at their mercy. Its ruin is certain now. No strawberries would grow in Maidencastle Wood in these days, even if the railway had not swallowed up their habitat. My parents on these occasions drank tea, I think. They certainly did not drink beer. Beer would probably have been cheaper, but by that time small beer was no longer the drink of the gentry. And we ate our strawberries on leaves, not on plates, 
that I do remember. This was not the only place in the little cathedral town where such mild junketing as pleased English people then and pleases Germans now was catered for. I remember another place of the same description supplying the same felt want of simple people situate on the other side of Durham, a wild and weedy garden among the ruins of the old leper hospital of Kepir. I believe the tea garden was run by the patrons of an old inn, the George, fragments of which still cumber the uncared-for meadow where the tea gardens were. The garden was tended then, and there were borders of flowers that children must not run across. Now, the untidiest living animal in the world, that is to say a hen, picks about in the mossy grass full of worm casts, and a donkey of the raggedest browses close up to the summer-house, where my mother sat with her friends round her, and I ran up and down outside in front of them, propelling a rickety perambulator. That too is gone. The doll in the perambulator has been relegated to the lower classes. You never see a, quote, lady's child with one nowadays. The summer-house, I remember, was a domed, white-painted construction of plaster with a convex roof and entrance pillars admitting you into a crescent-shaped enclosure of no particular depth. Something very like it used to stand in the avenue of trees in front of Kensington Palace, which was moved, heaven knows why, and placed near the Lancaster Gate entrance. There is yet another, forming part of the block of the palace buildings, immediately adjoining the little old door into the gardens opposite the barracks, where vagrants used to congregate, but are now chivied away by zealous park-keepers, so that pure, clean nursery-maids with their charges may shelter from the rain. They are all these erections purely Georgian, and so was the one at Kepia. I visited Kepia Hospital recently with Joseph Leopold and went round to where the ruined tea garden lies and stood a mature German Frau on the very place where, in my blue muslin frock with spots on it, I pushed a perambulator about in front of my early Victorian mother, sitting dignified in the summer house, wearing a blue silk dress with a lace collar and a large hair brooch placed just under her jugular vein. Now a bed of dark green nettles grows and leans against the building that used to shelter her. Some of the bricks that formed it were showing under the plaster which had fallen down on the broken floor. Scrubby thorn bushes dotted the hummocky sward, where an old mare and an old donkey cropped the bare sustenance awarded them through cheap humanitarianism by the users of their prime. And then, on another day, I visited the other place that I remembered. Long, long since, les lauriers sont coupés, in Pierrot Wood on the way to Maiden Castle, where my father used to set up his easel and paint the distant cathedral towers in the hot, yellow summer haze. The ticket office of the line to Shincliffe occupies the wooded spaces where we used to sit on our dark green painted seats with twisted legs, and gazed down on the little island in the middle of the ware. That too has disappeared. It was just such an island as the Lambton Worm might have coiled around. 
people in Durham ceased to come. They preferred a stuffy cinematograph to an innocent jaunt on a summer afternoon such as the German loves. It is perhaps the restless Celtic elements in the English population coming to the top that has unsettled it and bred this change. Or is there a more simple reason? The climate. And for that to be the reason, I must deduce a suspicion of my own that can have, I suppose, no possible ground in atmospheric fact, and that the meteorological data of the last fifty years will not even support. Was the weather in England ever less changeable? I sometimes think it must have been. At any rate, for a long term of years, and for the many years of my childhood, it seemed then to be more like the weather in Germany now, where spring comes so quickly, so vividly, so dashingly, as to justify the enthusiasm of poets for this season. Their printed rhapsodies, which in view of the English symptom of the spring, seem fulsome in their excessive jubilation. And English poetry of the period is full of nightingales, May mornings, violets bathed in dew. We have nothing nowadays to set against all the poets' expressed raptures, except a speech of Douglas Gerald's. I blame nobody, but they call this spring. At any rate, this lost social occasion flourishes exceedingly in Germany, where climatic conditions coincide with the social inclinations of the mass of the people. Not a provincial town in Germany, not even a manufacturing centre like the town of Gießen, which in some sort corresponds with the Durham of my childhood, but has its belt of necessary tea-gardens. What would Germans do without the regular family exodus of an afternoon to some place a mile or a couple of miles away from the region of their toil. This is really a vital condition of middle-class existence, and it is catered for most admirably. Foresters and lodges high up in the wooded heights of the Eiffel or the Teutoburger Wald, abandoned monasteries, distant farms, all have been included in this service of fresh air. Many a time at Hildesheim or Gießen or Trier, I have watched the mile-long stream of tea-drinkers faring laboriously but with quiet glee along the dusty tree-bordered roads to the high garden terrace of some such old convent as the Schiffenberg at Gießen, situated on a hill of a high, strong, strategic position, or to some valley-deep settlement such as Kloster Arnsberg, which lies low in a pleasant river meadow, like Rivo in England or they take their tickets for the Zahnradbahn up the Eiffel at Bopard and march miles when they get to the top till they reach the forest to Sat on Fleckets Hör, where there's an Aussicht. And from an Aussicht, this enthusiastic artistic people will not be deterred even by rain. I have journeyed with them and finding myself turned out of the Zahnradbahn with a two-mile tramp before me in the pouring rain, have murmured, emphatically and aloud, my wish to turn back. Joseph Leopold, obediently turning aside from the promised land of the view at my behest, was forced to listen to the animate versions of the rest of the party on his pusillanimity. Er ist unter dem Pantoffel, they observed contemptuously, 
and turning their backs to us, they trudged, every man, Jack and woman, Jill of them, sturdily on in the rain, in the other direction. But indeed, on golden afternoons, I ask nothing better than to join on to the procession of father, mother, aunts and cousins, and babies in arms and older children circling round their parents like dogs, doubling the distance, and cheering along Grossmütterchen, or Zante robbed all in decent black, and marching with a will. The men carry satchels full of homemade buns. All that the restaurant will get out of them will be the price of the beer and the coffee, that they cannot well bring with them. The women have their knitting or fancy work in their great underpockets. They are carefully and tidily dressed. It was a privation to me, but out of politeness I had always to keep my hat on, and so had Joseph Leopold. Any member of the hatless brigade would have deeply shocked these dear, decent people. Up to the Schiffenberg near Gießen it is, as I have said, a desperate climb. There is a zigzag path up to the top of which I availed myself, but I noticed those stout sable-clad German Frauen nimbly scaling the hill where it was steepest and where there was no path at all. Up they went, the stoutest first, up the sheer bank, treading on slippery beech-mast, catching on to ineffectual sticks of brushwood, prodded, hoisted, and pulled by their husbands and brothers. I dare not say sweethearts, in view of the extremely familiar point d'appui, by whose means the services of the strong arm were made available. They looked like a large party of beetles, scaling the sheer sides of a precipice. Oh, but the blessed calm of the arched convent porch and stone terrace, when once one did get up there. Sitting on the terrace in the old cloisters, with tables set in the narrow way that nuns in meditation had so often paced, we called for refreshments, and looked down on the scene of our efforts. Later on we rose, and went into the inn inside the walls, and priced old oak chests. The walls of the staircase were whitewashed, and yet they appeared to bear a leafy pattern, like a well-known Morris wallpaper. I discovered it to be a living wallpaper, composed of fir branches of even lengths disposed at regular intervals along the dado, and placed in a leaning attitude, so that a fair copy of the paper Mr. Morris aptly christened Evenload was produced. All the rooms were papered in the same simple fashion, and visitors could live there at the rate of three marks a day, pension. These conventual offices were built in a circle enclosing a large platz, part grass, part gravel, with an orchard and a farmyard, a carriage-yard, and a garden. Nothing, however, was railed or partitioned off. There was only one building out of use and not kept in repair, and that was the church. We went, Joseph Leopold and I, and an eccentric American poet of tenderish years into that church. Half one side aisle was open to the day, and farm implements were stored in it. Rusty plowshares, carts and lumber, repugnant enough to its former inhabitants, had they been alive and cognizant of the desecration. On the more sheltered side of the building, where the roof was still good and whole, 
was an object which was surely an old thing when the last nun left. It was a stage on which miracle plays had been enacted. We all know that the very name stage has come down to us from the fundamental necessity of the actors for a raised scaffolding. It is the primary sense of the word, the two boards and a passion of the Middle Ages. There were two floors to this erection, and on the upper one the actors, God the Father, Mary the Virgin, enacted their parts, and the heroes of the play, each with his vice at his elbow, ranted or intoned theirs. Below, roughly speaking, it was hell, and there the devil and the powers of evil lived, and through a trapdoor ascended to the floor above and worked their mischief. But they always went down again abruptly and ended in the lower regions. This machine was portable and perishable, and made of wood gaily painted. It was about the size of a modern motor omnibus. The upper floor borne up by fluted pillars, rudely carved and painted, and just such a stage, stained faintly with stained glass window colours, worm-eaten and ragged with time's defacement and the insidious damp of every day, stood on the cold stone flags of the ruined chapel of the nuns of the Schiffenberg. This remarkable object was quite rotten with age and the ravages of worms, but even in its decay it was a decorative object. The traces of original vivid painting in primary colours still clung to the decaying woodwork, and the trapdoor appeared to be intact. But the respectable way up for the heavenly choir of performers had long since disappeared, and the American poet wanted to get up on top. Very much against our judgment, he insisted on clambering up by the fluted pillars, and further scraped and denuded them of the painted arabesques that decorated their poverty-shrunken bulk. Presently we saw him pottering about on top and declaiming his own verse in a sort of medieval chant, which would not, perhaps, have disgraced one of the original performers. And then, with a small, insidious crash, he disappeared and made his descent into hell, covered with the powder off heaven's floor which he had gathered in his passage through the airy boards upholding it. The poet was not much hurt. Heaven had let him down easy, but we had to pay half a crown for the damage, and I fear we very much knocked another nail in the coffin of the past. That stage will go the way of all stages the sooner, for my young friend's careless impairing of it, Though he is a medieval poet and thin and hungry-looking, he is over six foot and an athlete. Another time some German friends took us to tea at a convent in the valley, the convent of Kloster Arnsberg, but very often it was to quite modern establishments that we went, erections like a smaller crystal palace, where those who prefer it can drink their tea or coffee in glass and under glass. I have lingered outside and watched the children playing ball and wondered to see their elders sitting mewed up, packed like herrings, eating indigestible cakes in very large sections. At Herrenhausen in the tea garden there, after we had ordered our coffee, we were invited by the waiter to do as everyone else was doing and enter a glass house close at hand and 
choose our own confectionery. Their neat-handed dienstmädchen were deftly dispensing to moist-eyed votaries of pleasure sections of the most various and voluptuous cushion that imagination can conceive or melting tongue render. The tables were covered with wooden trenches supporting discs of multicoloured pastry covered with sugar icing and set with crystallised fruit and flowers. Numb with awe, you pointed to the most bewildering example of all this riot of confectionery, and once a large slab was cut off for you, deposited on a cardboard plate, and you carried it out. Thus did I, rejoining a slightly sceptical Joseph Leopold. The sneer of the dieted was on his face. And I sat down and ate my slab. It was good, but not so very good. It was good as a cake could be, I suppose. It probably would give me a mild indigestion after the manner of rich cakes, but it would not lay me under the table. Yes, I was forced to admit that although I had chosen it for its tumultuous suggestion of excess, its wild promise of poisonous joys, it was only a cake, and not so very rich at that. It was just like life or a novel of the East by a modern English novelist. It had momentarily given me the Eastern feeling and allowed me to imagine that for once I was practising the sin of enormity. Inside that glass-domed mosque where the choice had been made, I had dared to think that I was Sinbad in the Valley of Emeralds, or a pure Englishman in the bazaar of the naughty end of Cairo. The next moment I realised that the grey reality of greed, stripped and shorn of the prismatic colours, lent it by the fecund imagination, was just a plain piece of Zandkuchen with sugar, nothing more. And I'm afraid it is very much the same with novelists' accounts of the acme of dissipation, when the unhappy showman is driven to set down for his readers a picture of the terrible enormities that he has been hinting at and suggesting all through his earlier chapters. Joseph Leopold was drinking honest beer and knew nothing of these imaginations of mine. For German beer, properly made and kept beer, is the main point of this vast system of out-of-door junketing, and do not let us forget it. And the reason that the institution of the Gartenwirtschaft does not flourish in England is mainly a question of beer. End of section 6